0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Cross Points Midweek Fellowship. Tonight, I will be reading from Matthew 10, uh, 38 and 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Pray with me. Father, you are perfect and you are just. Thank you for... The work you're doing in our lives, and for this opportunity to open up your Word tonight,
1: I I pray that you focus our hearts and our minds on you, and these things I ask in your Son's name. Amen.
0: Real quick announcement. Sorry, B couple of real quick announcements before we jump right in. Um, Springer wanted me to mention, so we're obviously starting a little bit later than we usually do. Springer just wanted me to mention that uh, one of the reasons was because the pizza that we ordered somehow got canceled. We had ordered it from Marco's and went uh, about 10 minutes in, Molly called, and she was like, hey, where's pizza? It wasn't there. So then Matt Robertson, who's the owner of Marco's and is a member here, he got in touch with, which, with Stevie B's and actually paid for all the pizza for you. So yeah, and so anyway, that, that's awesome. Um, so Springer said he felt like he got to everyone, but if he didn't and you paid, uh, Matt wanted that to, because, because of the issue, he wanted that to be a blessing for you. So Springer apparently has this very large wallet full of 10s and 20s and I don't know. Maybe he kept up with whether or not you already talked to him. I don't know. You can, you can figure that out on your own. So anyway, uh, you can talk to Springer about that. But uh, what that also means is we're kind of starting a little bit late tonight. I am going to endeavor not to allow us to finish late. To be quite honest with you, uh, we will have questions at the end. I'm real interested as to what they would be. Um, but let me pray for us and, and then just give this little asterisk. I, I teach pretty quick. I feel a little bit of a compulsion to teach even a little bit quicker. So in the event that I end up flying, you can wave me down. You can be like, ease up, you know, hot shot, like slow it down. Or you can just get the recording and play it at point eight speed. That's up to you. You can do whatever you want. All right, let's pray together, and uh, we'll be in John chapter six. If you want to ahead and grab a Bible, there, there will be one in the chair in front of you. If you don't have one, the scriptures uh, will be popping up on the screen behind me. But let me just pray for us, and uh, and we'll get started digging into God's Word and, lo- and looking at interestingly enough one of the hard sayings that even the Bible says in their culture was a hard saying for them. And so so let me pray, and then we'll move forward. Heavenly Father, as we come into this room, I recognize that that we come needy. We come recognizing that as we open up your word, what we're really praying is that you would open up our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, that we would realize what truth is, what is not truth, and that you would lead us in that truth. And I'm thinking specifically about this passage that we are about to read over and, and I pray that, that we would not so quickly answer what was the initial hard question of the culture and then move on to the deeper seed root truth underneath it of the greatness and the glory of who Jesus is and the way in which you rescue sinners, that, that we would in a deeper, more meaningful way understand For those of us who are trusting in you, our affection for Christ, our our love for you, the way in which belief explodes into the life of an unbeliever and brings them into becoming a believer. And Father, that would just give us this absolute humility and gratefulness as we throw ourselves down. And thank you for doing the impossible. And, and, And I pray that, Father, maybe there are people in this room tonight that need the impossible done. The hard, dead heart being brought to life. And I pray that you would do that even tonight, in Christ's name. Everybody said, amen. Okay, so John chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Let me let me kind of reorient just a minute here. Well, you sat on the wings, that's what happens. All right. All right, John chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Let, let me just, whoever's on tech, I'm, I'm just going to fast forward real quick. Um let me jump to specifically what we would say is the hard saying, and then we're going to backtrack uh, historically for, from there. So John chapter 6, it's really a little paragraph, uh, but let's just look at verse 53. So, so this will be kind of our, our context for parachuting in, and here's what it says. John six fifty-three. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He goes on, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So I I just kind of want to give you this paradigm, because I think it's very easy for us to walk in this room, and I'm hoping... None of you are kind of like on the edge, like, is cannibalism the way to go? But I hope you're not walking in like... I'm really glad he dealt with this because I was really just debating. You know, I, I hope that most of us are not walking into the room this way, that we recognize that what's happening here is a metaphor for something much bigger and greater. But I, I want you to think about this in, in maybe three different zones. I want you to think of this as a hard saying the moment that it was said for the audience that was there. I want you to think of this for the hard saying at the founding of the church. What did it mean for the first Christians, for the people who were walking with Christ in the very beginning, beginning, first century, second c- century Christians, what did this do for them? And then for us, what, what does this mean? What can actually be difficult and hard? And we need to have our hearts open and moved in this. So we're going to do a little bit of reading. So if you're opposed to reading the Bible, you pick the wrong place. Go to John chapter 6 verse 1, and I'm going I'm to do a little, a little bit of reading for you. We're going to skip a little bit. I'll try to tell you when that's happening. John chapter 6 verse 1. This, uh, the story I'm about to read is probably one of the most known stories. If you grew up in Sunday school, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. After this, verse 1, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, "'Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat?' Now notice, Jesus is the initiator of this question. This is actually a really big thing, because in other explanations in the gospel of this very thing, one of the the thoughts of the disciples is, why don't we just send them home? Why don't we just send them to the villages? Which would have been normal, like that would have been culturally acceptable and absolutely normal. Jesus is doing something here, and we know this because of the following verse. He said this to test him, this is verse 6, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus is setting up this question for a reason. We're going to find out what that is. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a a little over half a year's wages. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now we're speculating here, but for them to say 5,000, we're thinking, including women and children. Most scholars would say, you're probably in the 10, 12, even 15th. You're talking about a very large group of people. Jesus then took the loaves, verse 11, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, so what we're going to do is, in just a second, we're going to skip right over Jesus walking on the water, that, that little portion, and go to verse 25. But I kind of want to give us a, a little bit, my handwriting is horrible, bad. Okay, so we're in John chapter 6, and we're going to see something uh, I'll just throw bread over here. I know we're jumping over Jesus walking on the water, but we're going to talk about water as well. And what we're going to see is that most people, and this is what most of us understand when we read that hard saying, that there's a metaphor. There's something deeper than what meets the eye when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And most of us sit in here and we nod because if that was to be taken literally, I think we would have much fewer seats in this room, okay? And, 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 And rightly so, because Jesus would be inciting sin, which is another reason we know that this is a metaphor. But what I want you to notice is we're going to be going from the physical to the spiritual as Jesus kind of unpacks what's happening here. So let's keep going. Now, again, we're jumping over. Jesus walks on the water all the way down to verse 25. John chapter 6, verse 25. Excuse me. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So right away, you can kind of see, is everybody with me here in that last sentence that I just read? They're saying, what do we do? And God is saying, it is that you believe. Now, belief is a spiritual thing. It is not tactile. It is not tangible. I can't take belief out and put it on a table. We know this. But when we say, I want to do something, we can, I I can lower this podium. I can take the cap. Like we're we're talking about the difference in physical and spiritual. And now Jesus is setting this up. And so what I want you to see is this. This bread is going to become something else in just a minute. But Jesus looks at me and says, here's the problem. You're not coming to me because of the signs. Jesus would have been cool with that. You're coming to me because you've had your fill of the loaves. You're hungry. You're looking to find satisfaction, physical satisfaction, comfort, ease. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for some kind of comfort. Now, before we jump anywhere else, and if if I could just get you to throw this one up, we're going to look at John 4.15. John 4.15. I'm just going to read it off the screen, if that's all right. Did I not give you that one? All right, John four 15. I'm flipping. Then the woman said to him, so this is, this is the Samaritan woman at the well. Tell me if you, I mean, we'll see the parallel here. The woman said to him, Sir, speaking to Jesus, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is almost an exact direct parallel. This is just two chapters before. Here we have the woman looking at water. Now, if you look at the history of theology, bread and water are symbols of life okay? And, and you, can, you don't have to think too far into the Old Testament and the Exodus to start thinking about how that's true. But here in the, ex, in the exact same situation, we have a woman who is coming, and she's coming for comfort. She's coming for ease. I don't want to have to walk to this well. I don't want to have to draw this water. If you've got everlasting water, I want it. These guys are saying, hey, you just fed 5,000. Take that 15,000 of us. That's awesome. You left, but we're back. We'd like some more. Okay? Now, I I just want us to understand, in our context, we have fridges, many of us, full of food. The fact that ours was 20 minutes late, people, and and y'all weren't freaking out, but some of you were like, my child has to eat, or we're going to be off our schedule, and they're not going to, it's just going to go poorly. I just want you to think about this. Uh, Brian, I was thinking about this. When we do communion, yeah, one of the ways, I, I can't remember when we when we kind of updated the way that we did communion in a way that we think is more biblical, but one of the things we all, almost always say is, wait. It, it's not a rush. We're not hurrying. We're not running to a fire here. Recognize what this is. And I just think about Jesus' breaking bread in John chapter 6 and feeding 15,000 people, having some of his disciples around, and he's like breaking bread for 15,000 people. And I would just submit to you that our struggle this evening might not compare with what was miracle enough to cause people to walk across a lake to find this Jesus guy to get some more food. Maybe their pantry is full, maybe it was not, but you get what I'm saying here. It's it's this incredible picture that's, that's cast. Now what jesus is saying though in john chapter six is that yes you're wanting this physical bread yes you're wanting this physical water but what i'm going to offer you is so much better i'm going to offer you something that is so so much better now there's a key to understanding how we move from the physical to the spiritual Um, and a lot of it well let me let me just show you the key to moving from that. I'm going to read Psalm 78 to you. Not the entire thing. Psalm 78, verse 13. When I was studying and I began reading this psalm, I just got pumped. So if you don't, I love you, but you're missing out. I don't know. There's something about this. It just it gets me excited. Now, as I read this, I want you to think in this context. Jesus, we're hungry. Jesus says, if you'd come to see signs, that was one thing, but you're just coming to have your stomach filled. You just want water because it will make your life easier. Listen to this. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert they tested God in their heart by demanding food, the food that they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? We're in the wilderness. How are you going to take care of it? How are you going to spread a table for us? They spoke against God. Verse 20, he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. He, can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. Why? Because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. I, I, I just want to make this divide. There's a difference in believing that God can and will or can and should or can give us physical comfort and running to him for that. It is a completely different thing to believe in the person of God that is better, that far supersedes the physical temporal comforts. And that's what we hit here. But check it out. It gets even better. Verse 23. Yet he commanded the sky. Even after this, he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sands of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled for he gave them what they craved, satisfaction, comfort. While the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and He killed the strongest of them, and laid low the young men of Israel. There's something to this where where God is pointing to. If this is all you're looking for, and you're not willing to recognize that who got it, remember what it says. They didn't. Uh, they uh, they tested God in their heart. Uh, what does it say? They did not believe in God. There's this abiding nature of believing that Jesus is better beyond just comforts and things that we would get from it. Now let's jump, let's jump back to that part I skipped. You remember I I told you I was skipping over Jesus walking on the water. Why? Because I want to look at it in Mark. Mark chapter 6. And I want to look at it in Mark because Here we find the key to move from being people who are driven by physical to people who are driven by spiritual. And by the way, I know that there are no, well, I would imagine there are not a ton of light bulbs going off saying, I don't need to live for physical comfort, right? Like you've probably been coming here more than one Sunday or two. Like you get that. That's like what we're about. But I don't know how to explain this. And I've tried to explain it myself 20 times. And I just keep praying, God, you have to help me make sense of this like, so that it it will make sense. It's not just agreeing that going after the physical things is wrong or or recognizing that this is really a very prosperity gospel-driven situation. It's understanding that not going back one step and looking for the spiritual, but going back two steps and being more consumed with Who God is and who Jesus is actually yields the fruit of spiritual desire over physical desire. If that doesn't make sense, I'm sorry. That's like the best I could do on try 40. That was like after 39 tries in my study, that's the absolute best I can do. And you can ask a question and Brad can come up and do better than that. But that's like, that's where I'm at. This is Mark 6 verse 49. And to me, the key of moving from this to this. Mark 6, 49. This is still right after, if you look in 43, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. So same thing's happening, but we're, we're parachuting down in the middle here. Verse 49, the, the disciples had gotten in a boat. They crossed the lake. It was the only boat. So Jesus is like, well, if I don't have a boat, I guess I'll just walk on the water. And so Jesus is walking on the water. And as he walks, they see him and they freak out. Verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. That'd be a fine place to put a period. But we miss this incredible connection with what was supposed to be understood in the feeding of the 5,000. Look at what happens after the comma, 52. They were utterly astounded. Why? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus gets into a boat and a storm stops. By the way, to get there, he's walking on water and they see him and they figure, must be a ghost because people don't walk on water. Then when they see him and they start absolutely panicking, he continues to walk on water over to them, parkours his way into this boat in whatever fashion, and says, shh, and the world chills out. And they're astounded, and the Bible's commentary is, that's because they didn't understand the loaves. You see, what was happening was not just Jesus saying, here's here's the deal. Everyone here is thinking this, Jesus gives Blank. Jesus gives bread. Jesus gives water. Talk to the Samaritan. Talk to the disciples. Talk to these people. Jesus gives. But when he's doing this, when he's breaking the bread, he's not trying to show them what he can give. He's trying to display to them who he is. And they miss it. Not a few of them, all of them miss it. Absolutely. I like fastball, just swing and don't even like, absolutely miss it. So Jesus decides, let me help him out a little bit. I'll walk on water, step into the boat, tell the world to chill out for a minute. Then they'll be astounded. And now maybe I can explain to them what the whole point was in front of 12,000 people. Now that I'm in front of twelve. The point was, so many people run, and it's not just prosperity gospel, and now we're going to kind of move a little bit past that, this first rendering. Why is this a hard saying? It's not just Jesus gives blank. All of a sudden, Jesus changes it, and it's Jesus is something. You can move from Mark back to John chapter 6, and this is what I mean by that. Verse 36, Jesus said to them, this is the beginning of his I am statements, which also are a parallel and connect him with divinity and with God. He is God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I'm not here to give you bread. I am bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me, notice this, shall not thirst. Now he's bringing in this other situation of water. Remember, bread and water. We could put manna here. This is what we looked at in Psalm 78. The entire time, and, and okay, I'm just going to keep reading because it just keeps getting better and better. Uh, we're going to drop down to his next I am statement in verse 48. I am the bread of life. I'm not just offering you bread, I am the bread. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. What's happening here is Jesus is saying, I understand comfort. In fact, I know exactly why you're coming. Your stomach is empty. It'd be better if you were coming for signs because at least that points to my divinity and who I actually am. You're coming for this. I've got something better for you. And what I have for you is better because it's not physical. Your father's had great food, manna, the food of angels, bread of angels, and they died. I'm offering you something so that you may live. And this is how we begin to move down. This is how Mark 6, where Jesus is saying, you've got to see who I am, not what I offer. This is how we can look at Psalm 78, where God is giving and giving and giving and giving, but he burns in wrath against them because he, he, all the, they completely neglect knowing who he is believing in him. Does that make sense? Are we, okay, all right. All right, so now let's look at one, two, three. The reason this is hard for them is the metaphor. They don't get the metaphor. Just like they didn't get the bread, just like they didn't get the water, they don't understand when Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, that he is speaking metaphorically. They don't understand that. Obviously, he's trying to say, It's about knowing who I am. It's about me abiding in you. They don't get that. But even if they did understand the metaphor, and this is where it kind of pushes in with us, they still wouldn't have stayed. Because the metaphor yields itself to a greater reality where all of the disciples of Christ forego the very thing they were coming to Christ for. The greater reality is that we forego comfort. We forego ease for sacrifice, for the good, for the good of God and the greatness of his kingdom. Let, let, let me explain what I mean. For us, when we look at this situation, moving from comfort to something that is better, to, to something that is permanent, to recognizing that, that Jesus is comfort, but he's better than comfort because it's spiritual and it's permanent. When, when we come to this, when we come to this, it allows us to be okay with the fact, in fact, it almost allows us to be excited about the fact that the world that we live in is really, really jacked up and broken. You see, when Jesus made this statement, there was no doubt that he knew what was going to happen then, but a hundred years from now, 150 years from then, when the first Christians were walking around and living and moving and having their being and trying to navigate this faith, here's what was going on. The Jews were under Roman authority, but they were given one special privilege because Rome it kind of absorbed them, and the Romans knew they worshiped this one God. They did not, for sake of civil peace, have to forego that. They were allowed to still worship that one God. That was, the tr- that was still the truth for Christians as well in the beginning, But as Gentiles began to pour into the church, they realized this is not a sect of Judaism. This is this whole other thing. And they're talking about this other kingdom. And that's when persecution began to come. And persecution began to pour in. There were 10 different great persecutions. And you can read about it in Romans. And sometimes we talk about it here, like what it must have been like to be persecuted by Nero and what it must have been like to to be persecuted. But when Jesus said this, he knew he was going to make life difficult for his disciples, because one of the arguments that was levied against them was actually cannibalism. And that was one of the reasons that the Romans had a right to burn them, to to kill them, to crucify them upside down, to feed them to animals. But here's what I want you to understand, that that was a good thing. It wasn't good that people were persecuted. It wasn't good that sin was as black as could be. But here's the deal. It was the blackness of that day that led to the shedding of blood to where you did not become a Christian if you weren't willing to die for it. And those first people, those first Christians, those those apostolic, those those fathers of the faith poured their blood that wet the cement that became the foundation of a church. And that church is what we have been able to build up in and stand on top of. And this is why, I mean hmm, I'm not going to talk about Donald Trump and I'm not going to talk about Hillary Clinton. But I just want to tell you this. I'm not worried. I'm not scared about that. to, To be honest with you, it's almost better for the church because the darker our culture is, the brighter the gospel shines. The, the darker our world is, the more opportunity we have for distinction. And this is what God, this is what Jesus is calling them to. A distinction from comfort to sacrifice. A distinction from benefit to knowing the reality of who the risen Lord is. That's what he's calling them to. It's what he's calling us to as well. Uh, we, we were leaving Walmart the other day. I I, I do not pray for persecution. I don't pray for difficulty in America. I, I would love it if a lot of the things that make our lives difficult evaporated. But I also know that that may not be the best thing for the church, and so I can't actually want that. We're leaving Walmart the other day, and uh, we're in the van. I don't know why he said this, but Ella said, hey, Dad, if I ever become a missionary, I want to be a hardcore missionary. So I say, whatever responsible parent says, how are we going to take care of a family? If you're, no, that's not what I said. I said, what I said to him was, what do you mean? You're going to be a hardcore missionary. And he said this. He said, I want to go like where it's dangerous to be a Christian. I, I want to go to. I don't know that he used the word dark, but I think he may use the word bad. Now I'm not propping him up as by childlike faith, and 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 it's obviously good parenting and all those Bible stories late at night. No, but what's happened is Karen has been talking about missionaries and reading these stories about missionaries, and it started to fan this baby little flame into his heart. And I could look at that situation, and I could say, "Well, son, you really need to think about that." You really need to, you know, weigh whether or not there are a lot of different ways you could serve the Lord. There are a lot of different, but pushing him towards comfort and ease is not just not good for him. It's not good for the kingdom of God. And this to me is where this saying begins to crash upon the shore of our reality today. None of you are walking in saying, hey, should we be cannibals? Nobody is struggling with that. But what does it mean for Jesus to say hard things, intentionally hard things, to call us into difficulty and sacrifice? Why was it that Jesus was completely fine talking to 12, really 11 people after hundreds, maybe thousands had walked away, and he preferred that? And this is what we see. All right, let's... And we should... We shouldn't be surprised. Matthew 6, 24. He who does not carry his cross. He who does not deny himself. That, that's what our lives as Christians is supposed to be about denial. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Like we memorize that as kids, right? Like we got it. We understood it. But is it part of our reality now? Does knowing who Jesus is actually yield this in our lives? That we're looking for ways to deny ourselves that the cross that we carry would be more brightly lit for the world around us. Let's close out John chapter six. Verse 52, then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, don't miss this. The whole point of his explanation of that absolutely deep, intentionally difficult to grasp saying was this, that you would abide in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. I've I've had to skip over stuff, but I, I just want you to realize that when Jesus said that to them, one of the first things that they said was, well, you know, Moses did that in the wilderness. They asked him for a sign. Now, I, I jumped over this, but let me just give you a tidbit of it. They looked at Jesus and they said, what sign will you perform that we would believe in you? And it's like he just fed 5,000. What more do you want? And then they said, well, Moses was there and we got, we got man in the wilderness for years and years, right? Right. You should do that for us daily. You should be our comfort daily. You should make life easier for us daily. So then he says these things, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If you held on a long, a little bit longer, and you saw, maybe, maybe you would believe it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This, this is why we can talk about the prosperity gospel here, because it's it's not just like sort of a step, it's no help at all. If anything, it's a deterrent. When we give people this and we say, hey, hey, hey," Jesus gives this and Jesus gives this and our evangelistic efforts are, hey, you need to know about Jesus because, man, he's going to give you comfort and he's going to give you, yes, yes, yes. But if that's all you say and you don't say who Jesus is and what that must mean, you're really not giving them a gospel at all. You're giving them this, this faux comfort, this empty bread, like the, the little, if you ever get pad thai, you know that like rice plate that they put it in? There's like no value in that. It doesn't even taste like anything. It's just this bread. Eh. It's nothingness. Goes on. Do you take offense at this? Verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to your spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you. By the way, this is actually the hardest saying of the chapter. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus watched the backs of hundreds, maybe thousands, walk away, never to return. Because who Jesus was, abiding in him, was not enough for them. It wasn't what they wanted. After this, many of his disciples turned away. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, you can just feel the heartbreak, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know But here it is. It's not just what you have, that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, as though chapter six was not hard enough to realize that even among us, people can be hidden, disguised, hypocrites of the highest order to which we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, who are still living here. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. I I, want to close here. So that, so that you guys have time to ask questions and we can get out on time. I guess I, guess I just have maybe two closing thoughts. Thought number one uh, would be that there's actually a lot in common with those two people listed at the end with very different eternal consequences at the end of John chapter 6. Judas and Peter both walked with Christ. They walked with him for years. They watched the miracles that he performed. They watched him pray. They listened to him pray. They probably prayed with him and for him. They taught with him. They saw these things. They heard these things for years. And yet what separates them? We can go non-rhetorical here. What separates them? You can give me a B word or an F word. They'll both be right. Belief, faith, what separates them. But, but this then jumps into this, this other, uh, verse 629, verse 629. Um, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the father. I'm not trying to be the young, restless, reformed dude up here. I'm just saying we gotta read it, Right? And when we read it, what we realize is this. And, and maybe this is, this is my second thought. What separates Judas from Peter is belief and faith. How do you know you believe in Jesus? I don't mean like this. And you can say, well, I'm in it for more than the comfort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how do you know that you actually have saving belief, faith? How do you, how do you know this? How do you know that your affection is for who Jesus is. And, and, and this to me is really how we finally get to asking the right question with the right motive. Are we in it for all that Jesus is? Or do we allow trapses of what Jesus gives to be our motivation? The, the only way that I could think, like I said, belief isn't tactile. And so I'm gonna make this illustration and now I'm gonna be done. And y'all can shoot holes in it and I'm completely fine with that, Okay. If somebody walked up and said, "Will you believe in Jesus?" Yeah. So you believe he existed? Yeah. But it's more than that. So you believe he was a good teacher? Yeah, yeah. But it's more than that. I, I believe he's the Son of God. Well, explain that to me. Would you explain that he's the Son? No. Explain to me how you believe that he is the Son of God. Have, have you ever gotten to this point to where you realize your mental capacity cannot get to the point of your spiritual reality, where? Who you are called to be and what scripture says of your being is so much farther than our finite mind can actually wrap itself around and dig its teeth into. And it's annoying and it's frustrating. But to me, this is the glory of it. It's a miracle that you believe. Explain to me Jesus breaking five loaves and two fish. It's a miracle. Explain him walking on water. Well, there's surface tension involved and Jesus wore wide sandal. No! It's a miracle. Explain to him saying, shh, easy storm. It's a miracle. And, 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 and so then when somebody says, explain to me that you believe, it's a miracle. I, I asked my wife that question this way. I said, if somebody said, explain to me how you know that you love your husband or how you know that you love your child, how would you do it? But so so if, if you said, Will, do you love Thad? Yes, I love Thad. So my, my second kid, Yeah. I love that. H- how do you know? And what I could begin doing is listing attributes. maybe he's so much fun if he stopped being fun, would you cease to love him? Well, no, of course I wouldn't. I could list benefits he gives me It gives me this purpose to try to to, to be the best godly man that I can to set an example that's worth following. okay? Well, if he moves out of the house, does your love for him then if ever no, no no, no no, no. okay, so it's not attribute and it's not benefit, and we should see this because the greatest well. In my opinion, the greatest example of God's love is what we see in Hosea and Gomer. It is this absolute, unconditional love. And so if somebody says, "And, and, and uh, Hosea, do you love Gomer because of her attributes? No! No! Well, do you love her because of her benefit? No! I don't! Then why do you love her? I love her because I love her. I love her because God has put it in my heart to love her will. Why do you love your kid? Because he's mine. I don't know what else to give you. Why do you love your wife? Because she's mine. Why do you believe? Why do you love God? Because he's mine. Because I'm his. And and to me, that's the best. And and I'm sure y'all can feel free. I'm not kidding. Shoot holes in it. But to me, that's maybe the best way I can, in my finite mind, explain the miracle of belief. I, I, I love him because he's mine. And, and I think that is what Peter is declaring at the end. Who else are we going to go to? Jesus, you're mine. And I'm yours Eat your flesh, drink your blood. I get what you're saying. There's this, un- There's this dynamic connection of abiding in you that is so much more than going into the stomach temporarily. That's why when we break the bread and drink the cup, we recognize that we're remembering the broken body that, yes, Jesus gives, but it's because of who he is that it actually saves us. Does that make sense? Okay, let me pray. Uh, Father, I I hope I didn't completely box this. Um, I I, I pray that this very, in my opinion, maybe it's my lack of of intelligence, but in this very difficult to define understanding of the miracle of belief, we see this hard saying that underneath this metaphor is this greater truth of whether or not someone knows who Jesus is. And that is granted by the Father, spoken from his own lips. And so, Father, I, I, maybe, maybe I just close with this. I pray for those of us who do not believe, for those of us who love people who do not believe, that we would be fine living in the darkness without comfort, that the gospel that we hold up of who Jesus is would be so bright that it would be worth the sacrifice eternally, and that you would see fit to save them you would see fit to woo them, that you would use the means that you have called us to live out as the display of your glory, that whether it be through metaphor or whatever means, the gospel would be seen and understood and people would long to know not what God gives, not what they can receive, not what benefit or attribute Jesus may have that could increase our comfort, but to lie in the bedrock of knowing who Jesus is. And from that, spring forth streams of everlasting life and hope and joy. In Christ's name, amen. All right, guys. So, needless to say, a couple of metaphors there, a couple of different situations. Anybody got any questions? Of course. All right, hang on, Brooks. We'll get you a microphone. <clears throat> I, I was telling Brad this uh, as, as microphones come, and I really wish we had done this before last week. So if you have a bunch of questions on like, well, how do I know if I'm saved? And how do I, okay, well, y- if you didn't come last week, you need to watch that. Um, and if you did come last week, so that our questions are not so homogenous as the week before, just grab me or Brad or one of the other pastors afterward. Unless it's you, you've already got the microphone. Go ahead.
2: Yes. Um. Okay, I think I'm going to go to my grave being confused about how he, why he had to say it like this, because I just feel like if I were a disciple and I believed that I would still be confused on what it meant, and I might be waiting for his body to come off the <clears throat> cross so I could, you know, take a bite. I know that's weird, mm. but that's kind of how he words it. Like, you need to eat me. Yeah. So I think I'm going to go down confused about this. Um, but— my question actually has nothing to do with that. It's how does this play into Catholicism and then yeah, believing like transubstantiation
0: that transubstantiation and believing yeah. yeah. So I, I think this would obviously be one of the the primary. Okay, so what Brooks is talking about is the belief in Catholicism. It's called transubstantiation, which means that, for example, when we as a church go and we we uh, get bread from the ushers and a little cup of juice from the ushers in uh, typical Catholic. Uh, Catholic belief, they would say that the bread actually becomes the flesh and the juice actually becomes the blood. So yes, I, I think that, but I'm not sure what your question is about that. Like, is that where it comes from? Is this where it
2: comes from? Is this, do they believe this saying, you have to eat the flesh and blood, so that's their way of making it work, is by turning their bread and wine into flesh and blood?
0: I'm not a Catholic. <laughs> I, I mean, to me, that would be one of the logical ways that you would go. Yeah. I, I, I would go so far as to say that, I mean, there, there's nothing after the resurrection of Christ causing us to think that when Jesus walked and showed into the room, people pulled out plates and like were expect, like they understood the metaphor. And we're looking at it, looking back, having the benefit of, of seeing what they did not at that point in time. Right. I, I mean, that, that certainly is a part of it. I, to be honest with you, I don't know the, why Catholics would believe that or the benefit. Anybody want to hop? Brad, you want to hop in on that? Uh, we're going to need to wait so you can get a microphone. You got to turn it on.
1: That is the primary verse where they get that from, but it's really woven into a system of what is called sacerdotalism. Sacre, the Latin word meaning the priest or the, 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 uh, the holy one who is administering the elements. And so, what's really woven into the Catholic line of thinking is the holiness of the vicar or the priest… And so, as he prays for the elements, they literally are transubstantiated, or they become the body and blood of Christ, and the power is in the clergy, the power is in the pope, the power is in the vicar, and that became a very difficult, wrong doctrine in the history of the church. And so, um, it's not like they just looked at that verse and said, aha! This clearly teaches that this is a." It's woven in a whole bunch of other air that then morphed into the Catholic Church putting way too much power on the clergy so that they would have this special power to preside over the elements, which then leads to all sorts of other problems. So yeah. Good job. Uh,
0: anybody else? Yeah. Hang on, Andrew.
2: So, John 6 uh, 65, it says, This is uh, why I told you that no one can come unless it is granted by Him but by the Father. Mm-hmm. So, going to Acts 2 or Acts 1 and Acts 2, where it's the presenting of the Holy Spirit, and you come, as believers in our day and age, we come to believe by the Holy Spirit, is how we are given into God. It just, were those, before the Holy Spirit was given to the earth, you know, how how were those—I wouldn't say how they they became Christians because they had faith and they believed, but, you know, the disciples of Jesus were following, and after he gave this teaching, you know, some of them turned away mm-hmm. because they weren't chosen. Did they eventually receive the Holy Spirit, or did they well, walk I, I, away?
0: I think it would be wrong to to look at it as though, you know, we, we have this portion of Scripture where God the Father is— the primary and only actor, and then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's kind of the only one involved, and then the Holy Spirit kind of shows. What we have woven into, when we read verse, uh, I think, 65, and this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And, And really, that John... John's book, when we open it, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. It's this very Trinitarian, I mean, scratch your head about it, but this very Trinitarian view. So it is not as though what's being said here is the the work of God was being done devoid of the Holy Spirit. That, that's not what's happening here. Certainly the Holy Spirit was still you know, active and working at this point.
2: That's kind of what I was getting at, but do you think when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began, They were given access to understand what Jesus was teaching in a way, then and then as they go down the road to be apostles and spread the gospel, they kind of better understand once they're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well,
0: I, I think certainly both because— historically, experientially by wisdom, and then certainly the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, there, there is this progressive revelation of understanding more and more of what Jesus meant. And, and I mean, we see this in, in, in the very story, like there are periods of time, and, and the disciples didn't get, I mean, Jesus said to them, I'm going to, like, I am on my way. And, and they still didn't get it until after the, the crucifixion. And so there there is this progressive road. But even now, you know, now I see in a mirror dimly, then I shall see face to face. It, it, it's kind of like my, my struggle with trying to explain the miracle of belief. I fully expect that when we get to heaven, some of those... Uh, inexplainable, miraculous, hard to define, wrap our mind and teeth around, there will be this greater revelation. I think certainly that is the case in Acts chapter two as the Holy Spirit is absolutely, they get more and more understanding. And I think that's always kind of the way that, that when, when we get into the New Testament, people are looking back over their shoulder and they, they're saying, oh, it was so much bigger than we ever thought. And then, you know, we get into Acts and they're looking back on the eyes, and like, oh, it was so much deeper than we ever realized. I, I think that's certainly happening here and then all throughout.
2: And I think going back to the Old Testament where we were at Psalm 78, you know, it wasn't, a, it, it's all faith. It's faith believing in God that he will provide in comforts versus physical versus spiritual. And you can see God's frustration being poured out because they didn't have faith that they were going to be able to drink the water or drink, you know, have water to drink or food to eat. So they didn't believe in the God that just rescued them from, you know, from Egypt and so forth. So you just, you know.
0: Well, and we can go all the way back to Abra- Abraham. believed and it was credited to him. Yeah, that's right. Any other questions? Okay. Man, some of you guys are like, well, we're going to just, we're going to light you up. And y'all didn't. I was fully waiting on it. Okay. Well, let me pray for us. Um, let me pray for us. And we'll go like on time and ahead of time. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the miracle of belief. Thank you that you call us to something that is far greater than ourselves. And that in that we can, we can recognize our absolute need for you. I pray that as we, as we leave this place, we would have a greater need, appreciation, desire, for a deep understanding of who you are and the unfolding revelation of what that means for us as we deny all things for the sake of Christ, for the advancement of the gospel, for the for the pushing forward of the kingdom that we would be willing to forego all of those worldly, earthly things for a much greater eternal reward. In Christ's name, amen. We'll see you guys Sunday.